Welcome to another episode of the Emulsion Podcast, a show for chefs who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and I'd love to continue the conversation with you from this episode on my online circle community. There you can share your two cents and learn about supporting the show on justinkana.com slash support. For your convenience, it's also linked up in the description of your podcast player. Let's get into the show. What is up, folks? My guest today is Brendan McCaughey. His bio technically reads creative consultant, but he's someone that I'm calling a true renaissance man with 20 years of restaurant experience, over 100,000 words written on the internet, and a fascination with the cross-section of hospitality professionals and personal growth. I think you can see why I'm excited to talk to Brendan. Weirdly enough, several years ago, I'm calling it 2018 because I scrolled back in our Twitter messages. Brendan sent through a question and got it featured on the Tim Ferriss show, which I know a lot of you folks listen to as well. And I was like, wow, someone like this exists who's interested in this kind of cross-section. I need to find this guy. I need to speak with him. And we had an interview set up almost three years ago, and it ended up falling through due to some scheduling reasons, but I have him here with me today. If you enjoy this conversation, I would absolutely recommend you queue up either one of my conversations with another gentleman named Christopher Scott of Sue Design. He also has a bunch of really innovative and creative processes around working with professionals in hospitality. If at any point you would like to pause and check out Brendan online or any of these specific linkable things that we discussed, please do check out the show notes, which are always available in the description of this podcast or always available on justincona.com slash media. Through, through, the, through the snow and the wind and the hail, Brendan, you're here. How are you, my friend? Wow. Man, I'm I'm doing really good, and thank you for the intro. It's surreal to kind of have that summarized for me for pretty much my first time as a uh, you know official podcast guest, other than on Tim's show. So it it feels good to be here, man. And it's like you said, it's been three years that we've been kind of following each other on social, especially on Twitter. And man, the growth that you've had, um, you know, I've I've been really a big fan of what you've been doing, and and I'm I'm happy to be here. And like you said, through the rain and through the snow, but. I don't know if that was in the bio or not, but I am um, Canadian. So um, this is like normal for my neck of the woods, but it's not normal for everybody down here. And it was not normal for our grid and our electricity and our water. Um, Truth be told, I'm still without running water, which Justin and I talked about a little bit earlier, just getting into the call. And yeah, it's been one of those eye openers that I hope everybody who has running water right now and can hear these words and, you know, just don't take for granted these little small things that make a huge difference in saving you time. Talk about efficiency or inefficiency. It's really inefficient to go and load a bunch of gallons of water up and then haul them up to your apartment and then use that for cooking, cleaning and everything else. So we're man. recording this in February 2021 and you are in Texas, which Dallas, everybody, Texas. yeah, Dallas, Texas. Insane, mm-hmm. insane. And one week ago, it was literally, I think, in the single digits, and today it was cresting on 80s and the 70s, so oh pretty, man- pretty manic, so. Man, wishing you the best, man. I, I know that, like, you were so adamant on making this interview happen, even though, like, <laughs> like I said, there's literally a weather crisis that's happening. Yeah. Well, but, um, I, I think that what I mentioned in that regard, and I hope everybody who's a culinarian listening can relate to, is that sometimes you just, you have to deliver in this profession in culinary arts like no other. The urgency, the real deadlines, no manufactured, hey, I'll get you that spreadsheet tomorrow. Like, I need it on plate now, you know? And so, like, getting thrown off by something like this that much where I was like, man, is there anything I can do? Like I was without internet, but I, you know, I wanted to make it happen as a chef, as somebody who spent time 
and has a huge respect for everybody who does what they do every day with food. Um, I wanted to make it happen, and I'm here to provide as much value across all contexts as I can for for everybody listening because, um, like Justin, I think we vibe on a lot of learning. You know, like I'm, I'm a later in life even I, I came across this repassion and reignition for learning itself, and that is kind of the through line that's enabled me to do a lot of different things and enabled basically a kind of resilience to that ad- adversity that we've all faced through COVID and the people in Texas have faced through this weather and the stuff that's been going on. Um, if you can learn new skills and you can learn them quickly and you have methods and you have trusted sources of information, it just makes you able to be like, okay, what's next? You know, I'll figure it out. And just having that type of confidence, it's, it's easy to, try to fake yourself there. But when you get there from a place of, yeah, actually I've reached such a level of competence in this one area that I know the transfer is there when I go and step into a different area. And, you know, one of the things I want to throw something out there, I I heard you with Ray talk about stuff at the beginning, um, you know, that you wanted to drip later, Uh, leadership. I think leadership is such a underrated skill for people it, it does, you know, you can even be a, you know, a chef de partie, you can be a sous chef, you can be whatever, but your example and your ability to actually consciously learn how to lead people properly, man, it'll go far for you. And, and that's not necessarily something that I'm saying from experience that I was able to apply at the time, but it has been an obsession and a study that I've applied over the last five years across different contexts. And man, if you treat people right, which is a key to leadership, you have an edge over just about everybody else because I think everybody can speak for and everybody knows when they're appreciated and when they're not. And some work environments, our industry is notorious for having some terrible, you know, like difficult situations to, to go through compared to compared to a lot of the ways that people are treated where they're, you know, given benefits, where they're given, you know, compensation at rates that, you know, can keep them above the poverty line. And there's, there's a lot to talk about in terms of the industry overall, but I mean, consider there, there's a pin in leadership. We will, we yes, will circle back leadership. up on leadership. Yeah. Perfect. Man. As, as kind of a fun way to get a sense of your background, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan right now of the question, when did you know that you could cook professionally? Like for real, for real, <laughs> like, is there a specific day that uh, comes to mind or a promotion that happened where you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this. Okay. I, I'm going to answer that. But are, how familiar are you with the term synchronicity? Uh, it, is it has a... kind of like a woo-woo, like sure, it has sure. very, very my... for sure woo-woo connotation, and and but it is also a very real thing. For instance, my the reason I ask that is because the whole connection that we have and every way that I got on Tim, it was all very, very, very synchronistic. I actually was rehearsing an answer to this question in my head earlier today. I didn't know you would ask it, but it just felt like a story that we should cross on. So... I just yeah, got goosebumps. Um, that was that's crazy. And and to answer that question quickly, because I want you to share your answer, is um, yeah. my my wife used it the first time, probably about a month ago, when she was talking about uh, the dynamic between my business partner and I. And so I'm a big fan of the word. I mm-hmm. uh, like my mother is is very like woo woo about things, and so like I and, and my dad is the opposite. So he's very practical and very grounded mm-hmm. and very like. So I, 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 I can play in both, but I understand, you know, kind of like the value of both sides, but I'm a big fan of the word synchronicity. When you see it done well, it's, it's, it's a very good word to describe what you're seeing or experiencing. Absolutely. Or, but, or as you said, it can be a physical response where you totally. didn't call, call up those goosebumps. They happened. Mm-hmm. But so let, let's, let's get into it. Um, yeah. 
So you're in Seattle right now. Correct. Uh, you ever spent much time in Vancouver, BC? Yes. So that okay. is like our first satellite office that we opened as a business is in Vancouver, BC, and that's where my uh, my business partner lives right now. So um, oh oh yeah, right yeah, on yeah. man. So um, originally, uh, just for a little like backstory backstory. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Canada called Banff, and it's a very trendy place on Instagram, honestly, like Beautiful. nowadays. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, it's a gorgeous place. And, and really, hospitality is the bread and butter of that place. We don't manufacture anything other than memories. But when people go there, there's, you know, the rustic experience they can get. There's the kind of mid-tier, you know, you can basically stay in those hotels anywhere. And then there's the upper echelon, like the Banff Springs Hotel, which is where both my parents met. And so I have a background in kind of throughout my career. I haven't only done culinary. I've also gone heavy in the front of house. So I was kind of thinking of myself in peak restaurant career as like a whole restaurant tournant, like a roundsman for the whole thing. Like I could step into the bar, add value, if not create new value and, you know, across all the other places. So I kind of went back and forth in my adolescence in Banff between, you know, the front and the back of house. Once I found out how much people made in the front of house, I was like, wait, you have me doing what for how much? And they're making that much. So and they get to come in at what time? And then so I just kind of flipped the script and I would go back and forth. But really for a long time, I would only cook when it was absolutely necessary, when I kind of failed all other options or I didn't have enough experience to get behind the bar yet or whatever. And like, you know, in Canada, the drinking age is either 18 or 19. So at at around 18, um, I had already been working all the way through high school with part time jobs, front of house, back of house, um, you know, started just like Ray, a podcast guest that I listened to of yours um, at Wendy's, honestly. And, uh, but I was 12 years old. I got my first job, went out there with my, you know, resume that included my arts and crafts hobbies and like, you know, like my, it's so comical that like places that know that they're going to take people with zero experience still require a resume, you know, like (laughs) there should be another interview process where you like screen for attitude and work ethic and all that sorts of stuff. But it it feels so funny when you're like. Uh, you ever see those like sentences people suggest of like how to, how to extend the word count of your essay? Like that's what feel that's oh, what it yeah. feels like when you're writing a resume at that age. Yeah, it's just like, I yeah. Have this is all here. fluff. I need to fluff yep. this up. More <laughs> adjectives. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so like I've kind of been not begrudgingly, I've been kind of begrudgingly cooking and not really like doing it for fun and like just a little anecdote. I was working for a real chef, but I didn't know it at the time. And he was like, hey, man, uh, I need you to go make some mirepoix. And I had no idea what that was. And I was like, and I had no idea, like, what the, like, end result was going to be used for anything. And so he's like, here, man, let me just give you some onions, carrots, celery. He gave me zero instruction and just a hotel pan and those things. And was like, let's see what you got. And I'm telling you, man, l- looking back on that now, it was a transformative moment of, like, where I started to respect the knife game. And I was like, okay, this is a massive skill. It's not just, like, helping my mom out in the kitchen here. I was like... Okay, I was obsessing over getting them the same size, and I was trying to even do that. And then he came back. He's like, this is all going in like a stock, bro. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I didn't know then. I didn't know at all, and I would only cook when I had to. But I had this background experience that I started to really get into craft cocktails, like a little bit ahead of the curve in Vancouver and other places. And this bar chef was like kind of a term at the time. And so I was obsessed with – uh, oh, anyway, so I left Banff. Anyways, we got into the, like the bar, the bar scene there, and it was honestly that's a whole whole another kind of worms on what the industry can be like, but um, on the bar side. But anyways, got left left Banff, and it was just like I need to go do something. So moved to Vancouver, went to North Van. This was during the Olympics in 2010, and so it was popping. It was popping there. I was like, I want to go be there for the Olympics. I want to live through that. Uh, moved to North Van, and 
speaking of synchronicity, was biking by, looking for a gym, looking for a place to work out, was biking by this restaurant. And I just kind of looked sideways into it. And I was like, wow, that place is phenomenally designed. It aesthetically caught me right away. And I was like, I want to work there. Just something hit me. I was like, I want to work there. And so I was actually a busboy at an Italian restaurant. I started as a dishwasher. Then I was a busboy at this Italian restaurant. And I was making decent money. Like I was living on my own for really the first time with no, not very much support network or anything like that. And um, I ended up getting the guts to kind of present myself as a bartender to this restaurant. And I didn't really... You know, I didn't really, I, I had been a head bartender for about one year, but I couldn't really prove it. And I was just 19 at the time. So like in their province, I was not like, how could an 18, just turning 19 year old have a year of bartending experience, you know, like running a bar. They didn't, you know, I, I didn't think that people would really respect it. And so I was focused on the bar at this time. I, I go in and I talk to this guy behind the bar. He's the bartender at the time. And he's like, Hey man, no, we're, we're not hiring. I was like, oh, okay, that's what's up. And like kind of left. <laughs> and then I just felt it. I was like, no, I was like, I'm going to put together a better, like, I'm going to be more prepared. I'm going to go back and like talk to that place. I didn't know anything about them. Looked them up a little bit. They barely had a web presence at the time. It's called the Mustache Cafe. Um, it was badass. If anybody who's in that neck of the woods has ever been in North Van at, you know, 2010, 2009, it was a, it was a gem at the time. Uh, but anyways, we, I, I ended up going back and, and about two weeks later, and the guy who was behind the bar had actually hurt his knee. So I'm now speaking to the owner and who's also the chef. And so he's really busy, and I'm like, hey, man, um, you know, I want to come in, and uh, I noticed you don't have a cocktail menu. So I thought that I could, like, do a cocktail menu for you guys and, like, put together a bar program. And he's like, all right. He's like, you know, I don't think you really got the, you know, we'll see what you got kind of thing, but I'll take you on as a daytime server. You know, we'll see where it goes. And so around this time, I'm just around way better cooks who, and the design of the restaurant was half of the restaurant uh, when you walk in was this bar, and then the bar continued into an open kitchen with just a little gap for the service to go in between. So it was like, really, I loved it. It was like the bar and the kitchen were right there together. And I was starting to learn by osmosis, just by being there. I remember I had this serrated peeler and I was so like, I'm peeling my ginger. And then my chef, who was a sous chef at the time, later became exec, came by, he's like, you know, you can do that with a spoon. <laughs> I was like, all right, all right, cool. <laughs> humble. And so, so yeah, a little humbled, but like getting more of that, more of that like appreciation for the nuance and the levels to the game. And then I started cooking for my roommates at the time. And to answer your question, this is the moment when um, I had some ahi tuna steaks and I was making like a pineapple glaze and I was cooking and feeding like eight people. And the timing, it was one of those like inflow moments, the timing, just everything, all the ingredients timed right, everything, the best that I could physically do that day. And it was a hit. And my actual landlord was my roommate as well. And he used to be a chef. He was a burnt out chef who played internet poker at the time. <laughs> and it was like, just, he was like, dude, he was like, have you ever considered like doing this? Like as a, as a thing. And I was like, not really. I was like, but you know what? I was like, I bet there's an immense amount of depth that I can go with that and the ways that I can apply myself in that area with my background and maybe have a little bit of a head start, you know? And so then fast forward a little bit, I left Vancouver, come down to Dallas and I have serving experience. I have bar tender, bar manager and culinary, a little bit of experience. So I have this kind of interesting resume and that opened the door for me in the events industry here, which is something I've always kind of been in and out of. 
Um, but it's mixing these things together. And I, I want you to be able to jump in and, and, you know, to wherever, wherever you want. But I mean, for me, I knew that it was a path that started to call me after that moment. And the, the rest was like a magnet. The rest was like, it just became this thing and this driving obsession for many years that through that obsessive type of learning, I was able to find out that, hey, you know what? Although I didn't really like conventional education, I actually love self-education and I love the new opportunity to educate on the internet and be educated, you know? Like I love what you're doing. I love what a lot of people are doing now with, hey, I have information that's valuable to people and it's going to be a joint effort of those people in a cohort working together on it as opposed to what I've seen a lot before, which is like, okay, yeah, I, I, I bought a course. I, I, I'm sure you have. I bought many online courses before that I've never fully completed. And I think in a big way, that's that's one of the things that to kind of wrap up on, you know, this tangent of, of getting to where the answer was, one of the things I think that it's tough to, I can only find this from looking back, but like, we're all so much more capable than we think of doing so many more things. We just have that one variable of time. You know, you have to put in enough time to get to a certain level where you actually physically transform your brain from learning a new skill. And then you can really start to piece that together with other skills. Another thing is that a professional recognizes a professional in any industry. And so as a creator of content, as a marketer, as a writer, if you can actually be a professional or like a culinarian, if you're a pro culinarian and you know you show up squared away, your stuff is sharp, you deliver excellence when you're on station, you can do other things with that excellence mindset because it's a rarity, total rarity in my opinion. We're going we're gonna to get into all of that like transitioning and applying skills because a couple of questions uh, from the audience came in about that. But a couple of things that stood out to me in that in that background was this kind of very funny paradox that happens with people in hospitality when they're trying to send their resume in to a place that seems a little bit out of their league. And it's mm. this funny paradox that I may or may not catch this restaurant at the right time when there there's a position open and my resume just happens to fit and I can beat out the other person's resume that's on chef's mm -hmm. desk and I'm going to get the job. There's a sense of that. But then for some reason, it's also accompanied with this kind of like, oh, they told me no, so now it's forever a no. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're talking about from the sense of like, don't, just because it's a no only means it's a no on that day, on February 24th. It's a no. Absolutely. Two Absolutely. days later, it might be a very different staffing situation from whatever, yes. a myriad of reasons, people who have been in this for ages. So that's one thing that I want people to hopefully take away from that bit is that like, there's this sense of, uh, I'm going to shoot my shot, don't then, and, and there's obviously a balance, and I always I've, I tell people all the time of like, give time between circling back on restaurants and all that stuff, but there's a lot of people yeah. listening who are applying for that first job or wanting to make a move somewhere else, just because you get a no doesn't necessarily mean that's a no forever, that's the first point. And the second point was, I'm a huge, like, good on like reasons why we can be friends i think is like you mm -hmm. pitching that i'm gonna write a cocktail menu um what what else have you seen 
done well in kind of like hiring situations or kind of like <laughs> good tips, question man yeah good tips question. people can good take question. to kind of like present themselves in a way to to stand out amongst the crowd i have my own stories on that stuff but like mm -hmm. have you seen something done well or even like the way you were thinking about that to go yeah. into that conversation yeah, yeah yeah absolutely so i was reading at the time a book called think and grow rich and it's a classic. Lots of people Amazing refer book. to it. And it's one of those, yeah, it's one of those, like, I need to reread it again type books. Um, you know, I think it can add different value at different times. But so I was reading and absorbing that. And they're talking about packaging your specialties in a way that reflects what you can do uniquely. And so nowadays, there's so many ways to do that. Even, But I mean, even like we're talking 2009, 2010, the actual tech options to do that weren't as wide. We're talking infancy of Facebook. We're talking barely an Instagram, if anything. It was, you know, a beta in 2009, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe a, whatever. Around Anyways. that time. Yeah, yeah so like, it, was different, it was a different time to kind of showcase yourself um, with a URL, you know. So I was doing a lot of this physically with paper. And so I was kind of putting it together, and I was just like, I need to present myself in a certain way that also with my in raw enthusiasm, I can get across that, hey, I'm worth a shot. You know, I'm worth a shot. And that's, I think, one of the big things that it's everybody's been burned by that instinct of like, yeah, I'm going to take a shot on whatever it is and it doesn't work out. And then that's kind of like the reverse of what you're saying. It's not a it's not a no to taking a shot forever either. You could take the next shot on the next person and they're the guy, you know, right. they're the one you've been looking for. And I know how hard it is to find good people. So when you ask more about hiring, here's a unique story that also really, really set the tone. And I've written about this and I'll give you a link to, to link to, yeah. I think I, I didn't directly name the chef in this scenario, but I'll name him here on the podcast, um, Trey Wilcox. So you may or may not have heard of him. He's a pretty big chef here in Dallas, pretty big chef in Texas. He's been on Top Chef two times, including All Stars. Um, and I had the opportunity, I had a really unique job when I first moved down here, um, which we can get into, but that is, that is NDA city. So I don't want to go too far down that road. But um, uh, I had the opportunity and the budget to go and dine in like three of Dallas's nicest restaurants. So I was like, okay, Tom Colicchio's got craft at the time. Um, there was also this restaurant called Bijou, which I had a culinary uh, professor that was like friends with the chef and was like, hey, you're pretty much a shoe in. And then there was a third one, which I went to on my own with uh, this other culinary student. And I took him out and we had uh, this duck three ways dish and then duck spring rolls and they were just really good. It was called marquee And so at the time it was right in Highland Park Village um, in Dallas, Texas And for those who don't know same architect as Beverly Hills um, the first inward-facing shopping center in the entire United States So it really wow. set the precedent for a lot of retail for the next decades and century. It was an old old property um, Very nice and they had just recently redone the theater and put millions into this restaurant and so Trey was the showpiece chef and so I was like, I'd seen him. It was funny because like I still wasn't, a, I was still working in the front of house, but I'd had that moment with the tuna steaks and I started watching Top Chef and I was like seeing him and I was like, wow, there's a chef from Dallas, like just happened to be the all-star season. I just happened to see him there. Never heard of him before or anything. Just happened to see him on the screen. Another synchronistic thing. So I go there and you know how, uh, as everybody knows, not every chef whose name is on the restaurant is in the kitchen at all times with the brigade. Funny, funny. A lot of people may not know that. Who True. knows? But. But it, it, it's not always the case, and for many reasons. Not to say that that's necessarily a bad thing, but a lot of people have a lot of places with their name on them after a certain stature. So it's hard to be in every place at every time, but this was a single location, different kind of 
vibe. So he was actually there that night and I dined up in the bar. It really enjoyed the meal. It was, you know, the atmosphere was incredible too. Very, very wealthy, opulent atmosphere. And I enjoyed the meal immensely. And then I remember walking downstairs outside with the student and myself and there was a glass wall and you could see back into the open kitchen and I could just see him there at the pass conducting just, Hey, move this there, there. But he wasn't just doing that. He was also going on station and cooking right there. And I was like, Whoa, I was like, he's really, he's really in there. I was like, dang. And so I had this opportunity and craft was third on my list. The meal was good, but it just, it was empty. It was in a bad location. And I was like, this doesn't, I don't think they're going to be busy enough, you know? And so Bijou was my number one because my professor said I was a shoe in and Marquis was second. And so I go to apply to Bijou and talk about timing. The chef was there, owner. He's unloading some boxes. Maybe his front of house staff weren't there or something. He was doing a lot of the wine work himself, which probably isn't the work that he wants to be doing. So he was not in the best mood when I approached him. I had my full on cravat and everything, <laughs> culinary student, you know, yeah. <laughs> like almost yeah. leaving my lanyard on and stuff, probably, you know. <laughs> And so like roll up there. I had like six or seven resumes printed. Here's the thing. Here's two tips on resumes that I have for paper resumes. The quality of the paper is important because you don't you want to show how much you care about even showing them interest. Um, I've seen people sent the paper as well with a light cologne or a a neutral essential oil like vanilla. Interesting. I haven't heard of that one olfactory senses get into play and people are like what about that person i just keep coming back to that resume unconsciously through another sense wow um and then the third one this may be played out and it's kind of like an older style but like i put a really embossed border on my resume and so in its pat in a pile of paper it's the only one with that so it stands out that way too so just the physical paper but as you'll see in the rest of the story it's not everything this physical paper is only one way to get what you want so I approach this guy, have my printed resume, the one that I'm proud of, the one I'm like, okay, here we go. And he's kind of he's kind of not sold on it. He's kind of not sold on me. He's kind of like busy. And I'm like, oh, I, I was expecting, and I think the timing was a little off because I think he was expecting me to come maybe a week or two earlier based on what my instructor had said. So I think the timing just didn't line up. And, and I didn't get the vibe right after that. I was like, I don't think I'm going to get a job there. I don't think I'm going to get a call back. I'm going to have to really push for that one. I was like, well, I'm here. I'm in my whites. I was like, let me go just down the road to Marquis. And so I don't know why. I went in the front door. I know you can – I could have found the back door. I went in the front door, and I talked to the host, and it was between service. So fortunately, my timing was good. At least I wasn't like, yo, it's 5 o'clock. Is there a way I could, like, talk to some – you know? Huge tip. Like, worst time to go approach for a job is, like, we would (laughs) – I, I was running the pass and you'd have people like 10 minutes before dinner service starts, they show up and they're like, Hey, like I have this resume for you. And it's like, dude, not a good time. Like two thirty, two thirty is like the best time. Cause lunch, yes. lunch service is wrapping up. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're probably on their laptop anyways, you know? Yeah. And so I, you, you, you hit it there. So yeah. I think, I think that's right around the time, right around the time it happened to be, cause I was being strategic with that decision too. I wasn't just like whim- winging it or like, you know, I wasn't showing up first thing in the morning when they're busy and they're in the weeds and they got like a prep project. I don't know about that. They're like, Whoa, if I don't get this done by 11 AM, I'm going to be like really hurting. Um, so anyways, I go in, I talk to the hostess and I'm expecting, I don't know, not much from talking to the hostess and giving her my resume. You know, I was like, is there any way I could talk to like a sous chef or something back there or whatever? And so, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And then I actually sit and I'm waiting quite a while. I'm waiting like five, 10 minutes. She doesn't come back. 
um, I'm sitting in like the waiting area where, you know, normal diners would wait and it's nice. And so I'm kind of looking around, kind of like see this like motion just coming towards me. Didn't really like see him approaching, but it's actually Trey and it's not a sous chef. And so I'm not only, I'm just meeting this guy that I've seen on top chef, like, you know, over the last six to eight months. And I'm like now a culinary student and like, whoa, like he's right here. And he has my resume crumpled up in his hand. And I'm like, uh, okay, whoa, I thought that was literally the best resume that I can physically do right now. What is going on? And so he just sits down next to me. And for those of the people out there, maybe some of the listeners might not even know Trey, he's a pretty intense guy. He's big. He's a domineering presence in the kitchen. And otherwise, he's got a very bright personality, infectious laugh. Highly recommend you look up his stuff. He's doing great stuff here in uh, Frisco, Texas. Um, shout out to him. But anyways, it ended up being a don't tell me what's on this piece of paper tell me why you want to be here and wow. i was like okay man i was like you know i'm a hard worker i know that i was like i don't think i have the background and the experience with this level of culinary yet but i want it and i was like and i want it enough to show you that i want it so if you want me to stage like i'll stage no problem so he's like okay that was like all you need to hear he's like, <laughs> okay like so show up tomorrow 2 p.m so show up again like ready to go, got my knife kit, got everything. And he, he has me wait in the dining room for quite a while. It's just, and, and later I would learn his style of actually focusing on, he was the only chef, not the only, but one of the major chefs that showed me what real leadership is and how you can really tell when it's there and when it isn't. Um, and so he just, he had me wait out there and then he's like, okay, cool. Just brings me into the back kitchen. He's like, hey, introducing me to like two, three people. And he's like, you're gonna work with him. You're gonna prep. You're going to vac uh, meat. You're going to do this and this and this. He's like, okay. And uh, during service, we'll bring you up on the line and see what you got. And I was like, <laughs> okay. I was like, cool. First thing I do, cut myself. Literally, on and off. Like, first thing I do, bro. And, like, I got my paring knife, and I'm just quartering olives, like, lengthwise. And first thing I do, cut myself. And so I'm like, oh, man, don't, don't let anybody see this. Like, dispose of the product. Clean the board. Go clean my hand. Ghetto bandage. Like, glove and then go on and like act like it nothing happened and I just tried so hard in that stage and I remember he brought me up on the line during peak service and it was jaw-dropping it was like man I just saw this guy who later became my friend squeeze bottle like fully extended in his arm saute pan over here <laughs> rainbow rainbow of grapeseed oil into the pan just casual and like he's the only one that's moving like this everybody else is moving like and this one guy he stood out to me and he was calm and he was the most and to this day one of the most calm people under fire ever show to brian bell um he is a genius and i ended up being around all these people even on my first night that i was just so out of my depths to be there, but I didn't think that I couldn't eventually be there. Sure. You know, and that's, I think, something important too is believe in your ability to learn what other people have learned because they were once where you are. Such an interest, like, a couple things I want to pick apart there because I think that there's this to, to kind of mirror it back to your story on was it the Mustache Cafe? Mustache? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. So, so to you putting, and it's kind of like they might call your bluff, they might not, but it's kind mm -hmm. of like this sense of it's. I, I think of it like a like a scale. Like I'm a visual analogy person, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when you're just starting off in your resume, like we're talking about, when you're it's your first job out of culinary school or whatever, 
you don't have enough weight to push the scale down. And mm -hmm. so by figuring out like, what are these things I can pile on top of it, whether it's, you know, conversational skills, or I'm going to, you know, launch this thing, you kind of like allow the scale to come up a little bit, which then might, you know, motivate someone to take that shot on you. Number one that I wanted to kind of just use yeah. as a takeaway for people. But then the second piece was this sense of, I think a lot of people approach interviews, working interviews, stages, like their first meeting with a restaurant that's out of their league. And they'll put all this pre-work into the resume, even if they do the fancy paper and the mm -hmm. text in, the, in, the, in just the right way. And for some reason, they approach it thinking that that first question out of that chef's mouth is going to be to like recite something from your resume. <laughs> and in reality, it's like, yeah. that's not what they want to hear. I mean, you mm -hmm. even gave the visual example of a crumpled up resume. Don't mm -hmm. think about the resume. Yeah. And so I guess any advice that I would give to people, and maybe we can discuss this a little bit, is like, role play that out. You know, like, what is that conversation going to be? Because if the first time you experience answering that question is with that chef that scares the shit out of you, you're going <laughs> to face plant, dude. And it's going to yeah, suck. Yeah. And it's going to be really embarrassing. He was ready for whatever I was given. Who knows if he just fired somebody or what. Turns totally. out there was actually a timing thing behind the scenes. Of course, there always is. But no, the other thing about that was that it didn't end with a single stage. I staged for almost two months, five days a week. Crazy. Crazy. 100%. Just yeah, yeah, like yeah. I, I, I had that ability at the time right, right, to right. do that. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. you rely on family to like, you know, just be like, hey, it's going to be as long as it takes. I want this job. Like, you know, work with me. And and they did. And and then I got the job as a prep cook, moved up the line. And it was just a game changer. He gave me the real apprenticeship treatment that I feel so blessed for because like it's rare. It's rare. It was the true apprenticeship dynamic where there's the investment on both sides. And it's tough to do that because a lot of the times people move on so quick, you know, and it's like it's really a two year thing. Like it's got to be like a time commitment where both parties know if, if hey, I, yeah, I'm coming here. You show me enough promise and I'm going to show you some of my trade craft some of what's got me here or I'm going to invest in you extra, then, you know, you better be mutually reciprocal with that value and both parties better know, hey, you know, like two years or whatever the commitment you guys agree on, even if it's, hey, let's try this for, for six months on this one project, this one dish, this one consumer package good, whatever, any of that, it's like getting the alignment up front where, hey, we're both going to commit to this. It wasn't, it wasn't even really that. It just became that where over time, it, it was a natural progression for him to continually challenge me when I was reaching a plateau, meaning like, you know, really expanding my menu, like expanding the menu on my station. Like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, hot and cold preparations on hot apps and the most pickups of anybody, the only on station butchery. And then like, hey, it's Friday night. Um, why don't you throw out all that prep? Here's a brand new dish. Learn it now. Like it was just that type of that type of really yep. he knew who I was. And so he tailored what he did to me. And that was a huge lesson that I took away from him. And I think all leaders can take it take away is that you really need to nuance your leadership to each individual. Um, I guess we're circling back to it now. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, if, I, if I mean, let, let I mean, the, the, the point that I ask that is kind of a um, rapid fire question for people more towards the end of the interview, I, I'm completely happy to turn it into a longer discussion in, in focus on leadership is the question of like, what can chefs be doing better to help the next generation? 
and of course, taking the example of leadership as your answer, your one word answer, please feel free to expand on that. Cool. So I honestly do think it all starts with leadership. And I think you brought up a good way to frame this because it's a generational thing, right? So in my opinion, we're at a risk of losing a vast amount of culinary knowledge and skill and expertise at all times just because of churn in the industry. Because of people saying, you know what, I've, I've had enough of doing this right now and I want to try to do something else. A lot of people go through that. And I think that the compounding of that over time is like a knowledge capital loss. You have the true masters of cuisine in Europe and Asia in the South and, and all over the regions. You'll have your cuisine masters. But will you have a diverse, capable workforce that can provide for growth in the industry? Because I've seen in Dallas, as a macro or microcosm rather of, of the industry, many, many, many places opening in an unsustainable labor market. And so what chefs can be doing, not only the leadership of you and your brigade, the leadership of you and your team and individualizing that, making sure that you understand what makes each person tick. Because Trey could push me harder than he could push a lot of other people, or he would push them in different ways. Everybody he... He had a way to push or pull or get them to do what it was that was basically the equivalent of running through a brick wall. You know, it's just like whatever it takes, you know, I'll do it for you. And that's that's one of the things that as a leader, it's like you don't even have to call that forward. Seldom, really, the best leaders seldom have to even pull that out of the deck with like, you know, I, I, I'm asking you to run through the brick wall. It's something that in a high performing team scenario is an expectation that everybody shares. And so that's like the team leadership. I think, oh, there's, there's massive room for growth, and I'll circle back to that on, on team leadership. But talk about individual leadership of you, the person, the chef, the leader, and leading by an example that is healthy. That is a huge thing that I think people can do better to lower the churn in the industry. If we can get more chefs listening to your podcast, learning about how to actually diversify their mindset and invest in different parts of their life to rebalance what they're doing – because it's so easy to put in a ton of time in the kitchen and you get this kind of hyperketosis fasting effect of like, I don't eat and I'm probably on ketosis, but I'm probably also on caffeine and like a bunch of other stuff. And I'm not really zoned in on like what my body is giving me for signals. And that can cause me to lash out at people if I'm even just low blood sugar or whatever. It can cause bad leadership experiences, can cause all kinds of different stuff if you're not taking care of yourself. And so that self-leadership, that ability to invest in healthy habits to get stronger physically so that you can sustain the career. And I heard you talking about on Ray's thing too, like anterior pelvic tilt, your rounding of the shoulders, posture. Like these things, they matter long-term. And leading the path on that just you – know, Trey would do actually a pretty good example of that. He would come by and say – Hey, um, when I travel around and go to this, because uh, side note on him, he's staged in a lot of places. He's been all over the place. And um, he's like, you know, the people that are in it for the longevity, they have postural adjustments. Like they're not bent over. Like even if you want to get there with the plate and the microgreens and you're right there, like it, it's still, you can only be in so many patterns of movement for so long of a time before they shape your body. Sure. And it's one of those things that it catches up on you quick. So when it comes to leadership, there's two types that I identified that the individual leading yourself and then leading as like a, the leader of a team, they're very related, but I want to hand off 
the audience and everybody to somebody I talked about on the Tim podcast, Jocko Willink. He is the leadership, the man. And I, I am not kidding you on this. Like his effect on my life, I said it in 2018, and it's still true. It's even more true than now than ever because I've actually been consistently listening to him and following mostly what he's telling me to do and advising on like how to learn to humble yourself. All the stuff that he talks about with his books on leadership are so valuable. The first one out the gate, extreme ownership. Like own everything in your life. It is your responsibility. Don't blame anybody else, any other person, or any other thing. Like it is a way that if you actually have a team that does that, it is so positively reinforcing because nobody's saying, hey, you know what? He threw out that ninth pan of prep. That was him. When well, you know that you just didn't prep it or whatever, you know, it's like whenever, whenever people are quick to pass the buck, it's a toxic environment waiting to happen. And I think that that drives people out of kitchens. I think that drives, that drives people out of restaurants is once the, once the initial spark of the leader of that burst the entity is fading and on a downswing and things are like, yeah, we're seven months into this. It's not as fresh and as fun as it kind of was when we had it going at first. It's, it's a powerful way to reframe that, okay, even the morale of the people that are in this room is a responsibility of me. As the leader, it's my restaurant, my chef, my, my kitchen, my cuisine. I want people to know my food, to experience my energy and my vibe. Like, it comes down to what can you actually communicate to people in the most simple way? And these are all Jocko things. Like, the very most simple way that you can communicate stuff to people, it's a core principle of the extreme ownership concept. And we can go way deeper on the actual – like, but I encourage everybody to basically either go on Audible Audible is probably the most practical way for a lot of culinarians to absorb this book and throw it on. If you listen to podcasts, throw on some audiobooks. Um, Extreme Ownership, he balances out the stories of combat with the actual breakdown of the principle. And then he goes through how that applies to like business and non-combat environments. Here's a parallel, though. There's way more parallels between what you do in a kitchen and what the military does than most other professions. In Huge. a big way. Like, like the in, evolution of the brigade system itself correct it's, it's, it's one of the few few industries that still has that legacy tie where you can look at how a kitchen operates and how a military base Absolutely. operates and you can be like and, yep 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 and i full like bio of jocko but just so you know and why this is applicable to the culinary industry is because he's one of the best recognized leaders from the military when he was in the military but then afterwards, what he's done with his content and his platform and his podcast, sharing this stuff with people and the everyday people, it's it's massive. So he was the most decorated Navy SEAL – or he was the commander of Task Unit Bruiser, the most decorated Special Forces unit in the Iraq War. And so American Sniper Chris Kyle was in his platoon and you know that's just like the name-dropping way to give you some idea of who he is. But like look him up and tell me that you listened to a few of his – psychological warfare tracks that he doesn't communicate to you about something you need to hear because it's like man we all need a little more discipline totally and the leadership that i've gotten from him as an individual i know everybody who's a culinarian can benefit from that just throw it on first listen to extreme ownership and then when you start getting really extreme with it listen to the dichotomy of leadership to balance it out so no had to give that quick shout out no, but, but per perfect it's perfect thank you man and I, no honestly like 
I think that what you're doing is another form of leadership. It's thought leadership, right? Like, what are we putting in our brains? It's the same way that like what we are or aren't putting in our bodies affecting us. Like choosing to listen to Justin versus choosing to just like zone out on something you've already watched before and just consume mindlessly. This mindful consumption is so important if we want to have an industry that call an industry in 10, 20 years. You know, we we need to take action now to really get people to be able to sustain this long term. And I think that's a, a big part of it. Well, I, I, I share that the because there's a lot of people who look at the team around them or the person who's their manager at work and they're like, I don't see these qualities in this person. And, you know, that may or may not be a bit of an eye of the beholder uh, sense mm -hmm. of things. But mm -hmm. I share this, and to your earlier point about the age of information dispersion. And the, the, the point is I share that if we all can agree that we are the result or the kind of average of the five people we surround ourselves with, Definitely. why would you not take the initiative to surround yourselves with people who do offer those qualities via the internet? You know, like the people who are putting out <laughs> yes. the podcasts, who are writing mm -hmm. the articles, who are posting on Instagram about things that make you feel like, you know, like I'm kind of like, I'm putting these stakes underneath myself, you know, like that's elevating me as a, as a person. I'm going to, I'm going to like, yes. my shoulders are going to go back a little bit and I'm going to put my chin up a little bit and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of like, I'm going to sharpen my knife this weekend. You know, like I'm yeah. all these little kind of little, little things add up. And, it, and I think people will often fall into the excuse of, oh, well, I don't have a good manager, so I can't, I can't, I can't be, I can't, uh, I can't grow because mm -hmm. of my manager, like more extreme ownership stuff, right? Like mm -hmm, take the mm -hmm. ownership of, and yeah. I'm a huge Jocko fan as well. Nice. The, the, the point that kind of coincides with the question that I had, um, for you in relation to a word that you not only said in that answer, but it's listed on your website is invest. And mm -hmm. can you share why you enjoy the word invest and why you champion investing? Oh. Man, I, you you were a good I, I, you were a good student of Tim's. You were a good question asker, sir. This question is a very good one because it's actually a non-financial answer to start out with. Um, contrary to the most common use of the word invest, people think instantly financial. It's a financial word basically to most people, but we make investments of all different kinds at all time, and the most easy one to kind of overlook is what, what are we doing with our time? And it's so hard, you know, to actually quantify what that looks like in, in reality, but it, it seems that way until you do it. So what I did was I was working six jobs in kind of a peak transitionary point of my exodus from culinary. I wasn't fully stable yet. And I was doing a, uh, I was, uh, starting to teach at a title boxing. I was, uh, working at a, the front desk of a uh, gym while I was taking my personal training certification. I was working for a badass company called Onnit, Joe Rogan's company. Tight. I was actually a brand ambassador for them for a while. Really? Badass company. Yeah, it was, it was cool. That's another story for another time. But, um, but yeah, and so that's three. And I was also, yeah, working with the event company, both interior to the company on business operations and then as a field operator. And I was teaching cooking classes. Wow. So I had six jobs. But I wasn't making that much money. I right. wasn't really like even making enough money. And when I started to date my girlfriend back then or like we started to talk to each other, I was like, this isn't working. Like I don't have time for you. I'm not making enough money and I'm working seven days a week. So what can I do 
or what can I eliminate? It was some of the Tim process, right? I was like, what, do I, what can I get rid of here that's not serving me? So I didn't know how to do that, really. So I broke out the entire 168 hours in a week in a spreadsheet grid manually um, with paper and pen and just did what I could to fill in the hours of what I thought I would be doing at those times or what I know I knew I would be doing. And as busy as I was with that, I still had about 20 to 30 unaccounted for hours where I was like, wait, where is this? And that I, I literally don't know where it is. And I'm trying to answer that question and I'm not making enough money. So it's like something's wrong here. So I, I kind of deconstructed everything and I was like, okay, what can go here? What can I leave behind? And it was tough because I was enjoying everything. I was in a, like some low, low income, but high growth environments. I was in some good income, but like not that good growth environments. And I had a decent mix, but I was like, it's not sustainable. So I made my choice. And by doing that, I actually ended up saying to the, the one employer that I couldn't work for them anymore. And they were like, actually, we can't afford to lose you. So you can do whatever you want, set your salary, set your hours, set your, what you're going to do. Will you manage our business? I was like, whoa, I was like, I was trying to get out of here, but okay, let's, sure. let's see how that goes. So that was, that was a cool one. But after that process, I just really started to realize that I wasn't conscious of what I was doing at all times. And when I frame that in an investment standpoint, and we'll get to like how this loops together with real investing in a second, because it does, it's, it's another thing. Some lessons you just have to physically have that light bulb moment for you. And some people need to do the same lesson like 10 times. Some people need it once. So I needed to kind of take that lesson deeper. I'd done it, but like when I knew I was going to become a father and when that moment was real, I was no longer at luxury of any type of illusions anymore. So I was really kind of at this moment of like, truth be told at the time, I was not financially able or secure or anything. Like I was not, I shouldn't, it shouldn't be having a kid kind of thing. Um, but I was like, I, I have to figure this out. I was like, my issue is that I've never applied myself just like I never applied myself to saying, what am I doing with my time? And like really sat down and did it never applied myself to money. I was never in the industry thinking about like, it was nice to make a couple more bucks an hour or to get on salary or to like whatever. It was nice to like have those things, but I was so unconscious the whole time of what I was doing long-term. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't doing anything long-term with my money. Um, wasn't doing anything conscious that was gonna benefit me or my future or get me to where I thought I envisioned going either. So it was all broken. And when I realized that and I was like, okay, I'm gonna be a dad, I can't. I am now responsible in a real way. And that's something that you have to learn about yourself. I'm a real stakes kind of guy. Like if it's not real, I, I have the trouble to summon the actual ability to perform at my best. But when it's real, I can show up. And I started to listen to, I think it was even 2017 when I had actually bought some crypto listening to Tim and Naval. Naval, and yeah. Yeah, that was a really good episode, by the way. Anybody Usually looking to get, get into that space, um, it's it's transformative. So I got just a little bit. I just held on to like, what, a couple hundred bucks was at the time. Now, now in 2021, that, that was a good choice. Just hold on to that stuff, even when it crashed back then. But that was a that was like, that was part of the journey. Once I started to become a father, I was like, okay, I need to really do something with my money. And this is honestly, if you're having money trouble, this is my hugest thing that changed my life. Don't keep it in one pile. 
get four bank accounts. There's all these different bank accounts you can get on your phone. Now get multiple bank accounts and use them for different purposes. Have your main one your paycheck goes into and then transfer to a bank account where you can invest from. Transfer to a bank account where you don't touch it. That's just another cash account for travel or for upgrading your knife kit or you know camera gear or whatever. If it's in one pile and it's one number and you can physically keep – you know what rich people can't do? Count their money. They can't physically count it all. They're not like aware at all times, most of them who are truly rich in the sense of not controlled by their money, um, they're not checking their balances 24-7 and being like, wow, like I'm watching it go down and I have no way of getting this to go back up. So that's one thing. The other thing is once I started to think of investing my money, I just doing it small, you know, the dollar cost averaging method. It's very steady and safe. There's some safe investing you can do. And I'm not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice. I know you got to say that on podcast. Thank you for the disclaimer. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, but I mean, it, it's pretty common sense that dollar cost averaging in an index fund or ETF that matches to the S&P 500 is a super stable way long term to generate a return you can't get in a savings account. I don't even think there's anything wrong with saying that even the FEC, SEC, come on, come at me. Sure. No, but, <laughs> but for real. Anyway, so I started to just do <laughs> some things. I took some more riskier investments. I did, I did a bunch of stuff, but I was no longer keeping my money in one pile. I was like, I'm going to do stuff with money. And once I started to do that and started to experience the benefits of a crazy time in the market where there's a lot of upside and a lot of growth, which all markets have cycles. So we're down, we're, we're due for a downturn. Just, you know, it, it always happens. But when you start experiencing percentages of your time or percentages of your money compounding to your benefit, you just can't learn that without experiencing it. I couldn't sure. until it was happening for me. And I was like, wait, I just made money. How much did I make by not doing anything? It was like I just made a decision three months ago that made me hundreds of dollars or whatever. You know, it's like – so that was a bit eye-opener. And then with the time too, like Tim Ferriss talks about the time freedom. Like with – you got to balance those things, you know. And, and there's points in your career where it's probably best to recalibrate what you're investing in because you may be an expert in the kitchen, but maybe it's time to invest in leadership knowledge. Maybe it's time to invest in your health. You know, and there's nothing wrong with taking back on the throttle. Like it, it's a common, especially in our industry. I feel like it's you got to be a little bit, even if you're a girl on the line or anything, you got to be a little bit macho. You got to be tough. You know, like it's a, it's a, it's a tough line of work, and we pride ourselves on that. But it's also you're only as tough as your weaknesses. You know, so if you're getting some weaknesses, you're getting flanked, right? You're not seeing that my pelvic tilt is ultimately aligning to hurt my knee, you know, or whatever. Like it, it's, it's these things that they creep up on us. That's investing. Investing is stuff that happens that it's best to take a conscious direction of because your time and your money, they're flowing at all times. So to me, investing is funneling the flow and then learning about how percentages work. It just like the percentages of your time too. It's like, if you spend an exorbitant amount of your time, unconscious of what you're doing with it then there can't really be that much growth involved really until you start to say okay i i want to choose what to do with my time it's a big responsibility right i know that if you've experienced some more time freedom in your life it's not always productive it's always like okay well now i'm my own boss now i gotta like tell myself to really get on my schedule and like do these things and that's a huge thing i respect about you because you've taken a disciplined content schedule and stuck to it and is that 
Am I assuming, or is that a big part of why you're you're able to stay consistent? Yes, yes, and no. I mean, like mm-hmm. people, people for like I I joke that the, the 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 old intro of the podcast said new episodes every Thursday, and in my mm-hmm. brain it almost turned into like a meme for a, 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 an extended period of time. And like uh-huh. part of that was like I gave myself a lot of grace in 2020. I think everybody should have just because yeah. of you know. Like I was in survival mode with my business. Like we were like really having to go down to a skeleton crew and like what our events going to be like in, in the next 12, 24 months. Um, so, but absolutely from the sense of like the, the E-Myth revisited talks about like the entrepreneur, the manager and the employee. And Mm -hmm. when you start off on your own, whether it's being a content creator or starting pop-ups or being a private chef, like you have to swap those hats because the employee doesn't want to play in the next two weeks. They don't want to do the taxes. (laughs) They don't want to do any of that. That's why they're an employee. But then like, you know, the manager has to, you know, come up with the systems and the structure and all that stuff. And then the entrepreneur is the one that's thinking like big picture, all that kind of stuff. I really, really highly recommend that book for, um, but to, to, to speak a little bit about investing as a word, I think that there's this inherent sense of long-term, like future Mm, thinking mm -hmm, mm -hmm, when people mm -hmm. think of investing. And I think all of us would agree, like, what's the opposite of investing? It's like being a day trader. Like how many people that are listening are day trading their time right now? You know, like you're just kind of like, it's this very transactional, like, I'll just go ahead and do this. But, and it's not to say return immediately though. Totally, totally. It's total like, like you get that collab request and it's like, and honestly, I have to learn this lesson from a personal side. I was this guy at some point. It's okay if you're this guy, just if you're this guy and you're hearing, stop. You know, like the, I, I am unconscious of the fact that I'm making this so highly transactional in the moment that it is throwing off the more professional savvy individual in the room off and they're not wanting to work with me, you know, because I'm, and, and it's a thin line between really wanting to do something and coming across as too desperate. It's just like dating, right? Or it's just like, you know, so it, it's kind of those things that those nuances where I don't, I don't think that it's so black and white for everybody to be like, oh, it, is this the, you know, is this a schedule for me because somebody else's schedule is like that or whatever. You kind of, like you said, when you swap the hats, you have to deal with the parts of yourself that aren't as functional. Maybe you're not the best manager or maybe you're not the best this or this or this. Ultimately, maybe you can bring people onto your team that can help with those roles. But as he's talking about, as as like he's starting to expand his team, pr- prior to that, it was him, 100%, you know? And totally, so- Totally, totally. W- those growing pains. Yeah, growing pains. Um, the, the other interesting point in line, have you seen the chart that James Clear put out uh, author for of atomic habits for everybody that doesn't know and it's it's a it looks like a math equation mm-hmm. and i'll try to link this in the show notes so people can get this visual but it's it's oh. one to the power of 365 mm-hmm. and then it's 1.01 to the 365th power from the sense oh. of you stay the same 365 better. yeah so you get one percent better every day for yeah, 360 yeah. do you know what that number is uh-uh. at 37 so 37. 37. Wow. And our hands, our heads can't wrap our mind around that. So if you get 1% better every day for a year, everybody can look this 37% up. 37% better? 37 times. Oh, 37, 37. times. Oh, so 1.01 turns yeah, yeah, yeah. into 37 oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. when oh, compounded man. 1% every day for 365 days. 
Wow. Understanding so that, that is, not that is that is the math of investing, and it's hard. To, it's some people even with the visual, even with everything, they may not grasp it until it's their money doing it, or until they dehinge themselves from their schedule in a way where they can look at their time. Because I, I know I had heard that type of math probably in the past, maybe didn't absorb it too well, obviously, but the lesson didn't sink in until it was personal for me. You know. The next point, and I. I, I'm trying really hard to not turn this into a personal therapy session with Brendan, but I, I really <laughs> grapple with this thought exercise, mm -hmm. call it a risk, call it a, let's just try it and see an experiment mm -hmm. of what would happen if I were to drop the word chef from what I do in certain meetings or interactions, because there's a lot of, I think that we uh, chefs get a lot of value from like seeing it playing out in Japan where it's like one person works on this one discipline for 40 years and they become a master and they have apprentices and mm -hmm. all that stuff. But then you or I are almost kind of like, we have a lot of things we list on our websites of what we do and what we have yeah. expertise in and what we, and I can't decide if it's a little bit of sunk cost fallacy or if I, en I enjoy the fact that being a chef comes with this kind of like you work really hard and get the job done kind of pretense, but mm -hmm. I, I need some convincing, like why keep culinary in your bio? That's a really, really, really good question. <laughs> and something that I grapple with too, because truth be told, like I've never been an exec. So in my mind, when I'm talking to other chefs, I don't go around being like, I'm a chef, you know? So in the industry, I I'm seldom like boasting that because if I think of it like a martial art, which I do think of culinary arts very much like a martial art because you can get diverse. You can be a black belt in making dumplings, but you can suck at cooking fish or something. You know, for instance, you can get way over niched in your specialties as a culinarian for sure. But I'd say I'm a like brown belt. You know, I'm like I can get into deep flow. I can even teach. I can do things well. But like I even the way not... you talk about it, like you can tell, like, you know, you have your experience, right? Like we haven't even cooked together, but like, yeah. you know, you know, yeah, I know we could cook together and I know, I know that I, I would subserve myself on all skill level things that I know there's a gap on immediately. I would just feel it. You know, I'd be like, okay, cool. As soon as I asked you a question about what temp to do this meat or what temp to do anything. And I got your response. I'd be like, oh, okay, got it. You know? And so the keeping it there is, is my way of the lay person trying to bridge a gap of understanding in one word, right? Because it's a background that's unique and it is a misunderstood background. So it's a quick way in one word to try to convey something that's so nuanced that in bio sense, just, you know, your character limitations won't allow, you know? So although there's other words, polymath, Renaissance man, you know, you know, uh, multidisciplinary performer, all these things we could say, I think that to be true to our roots as long as possible, I think we're kind of in that phase that Tim was in, in part of the four hour work week where he was like, I really struggle on like telling people what I do, you know, like the most American question he calls it like, well, so what do you do? And, and in a, it all depends on who you're talking to, right? If somebody's asking you what you do with that curious look, like they're actually invested in your answer, you can go a little deeper and probably way out or something like that you know be like yeah i've spent sure. a lot of time in the culinary and you know but if you're looking at somebody who could make a decision that would benefit you or anybody you're trying to influence or talk to but they're kind of just asking it in that casual way i think it covers a lot of ground so just on pure efficiency i think you you can justify it although more idealistically i do totally understand where you're coming from in a sense of being like well that is no longer the only part of my identity 
and I'm trying to forge and self-create and self-identify as other things as well. And I'm not a lot of people understand that. So like, I feel the same way when like I put filmmaker, filmmaker is my legacy long-term vision of like, I would love to make a really great film one day. And I'm okay with calling myself a filmmaker now, even as I'm learning, even as my stuff sucks, I'm okay with calling myself that now and having chef there. And I'm, I'm also okay with people not understanding what I'm doing or who I am. If they don't want, if, if they want to find out, then cool. You know, like, I'd love to like connect with you if you're like, oh yeah, I'm curious because it seems like you do a lot of things and you're carrying forth, you know, what you learned in one thing and doing other things. But other people are like, oh, it seems like you switch, switch jobs a lot. Or like you, you know, you do this like short term type of, oh, you, there's no way you could really have that much knowledge about any of that stuff because you try to do too many things. And I think one calls it the expert generalist. You know, it's like if you can have a certain like skill set with people, for instance, if you are good with people, if you can read, write, if you like lean on what's on what works and it can work in a lot of different contexts. Super helpful. Um, yeah. Cool. And no, I mean, it, honestly, like you're you're we're unique in that way of like, I, I don't have anybody else asking me questions like this and yeah. somebody else who's on the other side trying to do similar things. They would even have a question <laughs> like that. Ask me, you know. I ask that yes. because there's a there's a chef that is here local in Seattle who just got a opportunity to go on a, a large TV food show. And he asked me to host a session that he was going to launch as part of a YouTube channel series. He was very mm -hmm. adamant about me being the person to do it. And I kind of had like, again, these like combining either psychological concepts or mental models or whatever. It was like a combination of like imposter syndrome and like, how am I qualified for this? And then also kind of like, should this be what I'm doing with my time? Like, does this make me mm -hmm. lesser than a chef? You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. like, what should I be cooking on this show that he's wanting to launch versus interviewing him and hosting with him on camera? And mm -hmm. I think that it's kind of like this funny dichotomy of like, you want, you want the life where you never have to send a resume again. But then you also yeah. have to understand what that comes with, which is a sense of like, if people want the the bona fide specialist, the person that is the best at this one thing, then they're yeah. going to find that person. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. In, through mm -hmm. through whatever. And so I, I like that 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 language of like the the um, the generalist. Like I'm a huge fan of like the specialization is for insects kind of like mentality. Yeah. And and I think we talked about a little bit about Naval earlier, and I think that kind of reminds me of his fourth kind of luck, right? And so you're not getting that opportunity because you're just able to execute as a sous chef and lead people or as an exec or create a menu. You're doing that because of the other stuff you've layered on top of that, right? So you're, you've done all that. You've got those bona fides. That's neurological pathways that are wired. You can call back on them. And just like ring rust for a UFC fighter – it's real. Like you'll take you a second to get back up to speed. Like whenever I step back into the, the line or whenever I'm cooking privately or whatever I'm doing, it takes me a second to kind of get back up to speed. Like I'm not going to be like prepping the same monotonous task as fast as I used to, but I'm also more efficient on a thought level as well. So I'm like, yeah, I'm coming to this with multiple layers of improvement to my brain that aren't just my skills. So anyways, that's a little aside, but it's kind of like the fourth type of luck that Naval talks about, and we can link to that, is like you're in such a position, you're the only person that can actually do what is required because of the way that you went about things a different way and layered so many things. Like his metaphor with that is, I think, uh, being like a um, like renowned scuba diver who finds treasure. Um, like you get the call from 
somebody who's found treasure but can't get it. And you would never get that call if you were just a scuba diver or if you were like, you know, a historian of treasure alone, you know, combining those two things and actually going out and being like, yeah, I've salvaged off that boat. You're getting the phone call, which is the fourth kind of luck, which is the kind of luck you can only create. And I could be I'm definitely sure. paraphrasing. I could be actually I could be misinterpreting this <laughs> as the third kind potentially. But I think the fourth kind is where you get the type of luck that only you can get because it's such a unique opportunity you're only suited for. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, so when it comes comes to that bridging cuisine and, and culture like there's not a lot of people doing it so you're uniquely positioned especially in the seattle scene i think you're more than qualified i hope you took that opportunity and didn't let yeah. the imposters in from, totally no, like, I get, get you oh good good yeah yeah yeah. Uh, and, and, and yeah and good question you had on the end there though too is, is this what i should be doing with my time because now with the age of the internet the age of opportunities the age of should i be writing should i be podcasting should i be like there's so many should i's that getting that answer right is is often hard and you can only sometimes know after the fact whether it was a right call or not. So right, do right. you think like now that you've done it, that it is something you want to spend more time doing or was it just something that you should have been doing at that time? Well, it's getting put on, I mean, it's getting put on hold, that project in general, um, because he had some other things that he needed to deal with, whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, constant question. This is another James Clearism, which is like, what higher leverage tasks either could you be or should you be working on? like the things that only you can do. And like when you get to that place in your career, like that becomes so important for you to ask yourself or else you'll just get completely bogged down by the monotony Absolutely. or the repeatable or the delegatable tasks. Um, I, yeah. To transition to another piece that is, um, again, a, a, a polymathic represent, facet of Brendan, a lot of chefs end up making their way into consulting, whether it's between mm -hmm. jobs or they use it as a chapter in their career to network, you know, kind of like mm -hmm. find investors or business partners or even just to make some money. Like you don't have to have a big brick and mortar operation to consult Very or true. even just to like slow down the lifestyle a bit of, you know, constantly exec chefing for, for a while. Absolutely. So to the chef Absolutely. that's considering consulting or they've been offered an opportunity consult or someone has asked them, would you consult with me on this project? And they've never, never done it before. What should that chef keep in mind or seek to avoid? You can kind of play either, either side. Very, of that coin. very, very, very good question. Um, there's a couple layers to that because consulting is an important step for a lot of chefs. I have a friend who's doing this right now, in fact, and he called me before he did it and wanted to run some things by me. He's one of Trey's little brothers, which is like the group of uh, people that like are to this day still extremely loyal to Trey. Um, and him and I, uh, my friend who called me, we'd opened up a spot together. Shout out to Ollie. Uh, but he's consulting now. And um, he asked me some of the good questions like, you know, what is the stamp you're going to leave? And when can you leave? Like, but those, those are later. Those are like some tangible, like actual, like, what are you, what is the deliverable? Making sure that it's not some kind of like, oh, we think we're getting something from you. And so clarity on where the consultation turns and, and it's often uncomfortable to even bring those things up in advance. A lot of people don't. I know I still sometimes don't when I'm doing business with somebody I know well. I don't just upfront make it like, and we talked about that earlier, making it transactional. There's a line you do have to set though at some point where you say, hey, I think we need to get clear about what we're both expecting or, you know, use language similar to that or whatever. But that type of, if you're going into something that's new for you and you have expectations, you better believe that the other party has expectations too. And if they're out of alignment, then it's going to be really hard to deliver value for each other. And I think that in a new type of way, consulting is also 
becoming sort of commoditized in a sense. Like anybody can quit the game and become a consultant, right? So what is your unique value? Are you going to specialize in whatever type of sub menu that you're uniquely good at and that's going to be the theme of their restaurant and it aligns perfectly? Like you're the ramen guy and you're going to come in and take their ramen program to the next level? Or are they really struggling financially and you don't know finance, but you're like, I should come in and take this check though. Like, and then they're going to be screwed either way. Cause I don't really know the answer they're looking for. So knowing who you are and what your strengths are helps you not only deliver the value, but also market yourself. Right. So if you're, if you're marketing the wrong thing, if you're like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I can help a restaurant turn around and you've never turned around a restaurant then that's a totally different story where imposter syndrome isn't a syndrome that may be the real deal of like, hey, you need to level up on your to get there kind of thing or in a very real way, like this could be a short-term thing if you aren't thinking long-term, you know? It almost gives the client like more conviction around you as a choice. Like if you're the, and again, we're we're constantly fighting this battle of like being the everyman that can do everything yes, versus exactly. like being the specialist exactly, right? that like is known for certain things. But I think that in those moments of like, we're talking about like it's crunch time. There's probably a lot of money involved. Like this project has mm-hmm. to get off the ground. Like there's actually real things at stake if you fuck this up. Don't say that you're mm-hmm. the operations guy if you have no idea about operations. All you do is the oh, creative, yeah. you know. So like being able to put your hand up and say like that's actually not like part of my wheelhouse like i have a great network of people i'm happy to put you in touch with but like that's not me um that almost like reaffirms the purchase right to the client of like oh we picked the right guy you know because he's being transparent and and because he's not going to say that to us down the line when he hits a a technical issue that he thought he could probably work around but he can't totally totally yeah i totally agree and and last on the on the kind of consulting thing too um there's such a opportunity to integrate technology and cuisine that's so it hasn't even happened yet and it's like i don't even know there's directions it's going and there's stuff like that but if you're even moderately tech savvy you have the opportunity to not only like just practice make make a really organized menu or a really beautiful menu in coda or like notion or whatever like do do something technical that you can show remember what i was talking about like show if you're if you're trying to get into consulting build a proof of concept kind of thing and be like hey i could do this for your business um that's a really good way to get in the door like we've been talking about getting in the door right and so what he's also talking about and i think is key is that and to bring it back to his example it would be a different thing if he thought he couldn't execute that friend request to do the to be the host totally. if he thought he couldn't do it and yeah. he said he and he said yes, but he thought inside he can't do it. He's not ready. Right. You know? So right. he knew he could do it. It was more of a higher level, should I do it? Question. So not totally. can I do it, should I do it? If you're asking can I do it and you have anything over a 50% doubt ratio or approaching 50%, you're probably in that threshold of not going to be able to perform under pressure when asked. So, yeah, you're on a thin ice kind of dangerous precipice there of saying yes when you can get the learning also, what Justin said too is if you're in a high stakes scenario and you're not a high stakes player, you're at the wrong you're at the wrong game. You know, if you're not used to like, oh wow, like there's a hundred K on the line, they need me to build this out like boom, boom, boom. And you're like, hey, I'm on a I'm on a three week timeline and you're on a three day timeline, you know, like these these type of things will also hurt you reputationally, which is a huge thing that I was gonna get to in consultation is 
it's all about the relationship, right? So if you're in it, like we talk about the short term, hey, I, I, I want to make some quick money off of you. And I don't really, I'm really not even going to ask the right questions to get you the value that you need on my end. I kind of, I'm going to just, what do you need? Oh, that's what you need. Okay, cool. I'll do it for you. Kind of that bare minimum, like people, of course, everybody in every industry can see the people around that we've seen it. Do the bare minimum. But uh, yeah, that, that is a huge thing, building the relationship with the client because down the line, it's not as easy to say and have like a physical location like the French Laundry's reputation is almost set in stone. Like they could really start doing a lot of bad stuff and they're not going to, of course, that's their culture. But it's like they could really start doing a lot of stuff and it probably wouldn't compromise their reputation for a really long time. But a new restaurant is very different and an individual consultant, it's even more different. If you get branded as somebody who's a late deliverer or can't execute or doesn't know what they're talking about, pretender, it's almost as uh, – you're blacklisted. You might as well like – I don't know. You know, at, at that point, your reputation is is something to always be aware of, not just your online rep- reputation, the, the verbal reputation you have with people that interact with you in person as well. The transition I'm going to make is to semi-talk about – not even your work professionally, but I want, I want to talk about routines. Mm, Okay. Uh, what in your mind is the no brainer habit that culinary professionals, hospitality professionals can do to facilitate some growth. And I'm Mm -hmm. kind of like the, the Brendan version of this question is like routines for growth for hospitality professionals, Mm -hmm. like might not be something that, um, and feel free to give time frames too. If you're like, mm-hmm. this is something that you're going to do now that's going to suck, or you might not really see the results of this for 12 months down the line. Mm-hmm. But either, yeah, start start there, and then I have a follow up question. Cool. Um, definitely some some low hanging fruit that you could start doing right away is just taking percentages of your money, like I said, and kind of spreading that out. Agreed. I mean, the, those routines of, and and what happened to me was I used to have a. T- totally negative energy and feeling about money at all times. I was just like, I don't like talking about it. don't like thinking about it. I, I like what I do to make it, but I don't really care how much I make. I'm not focused on it. I was like, I was like, I don't want to focus on it kind of thing. Like I was literally avoiding it. And when I stopped doing that and I made beneficial routines that were like, Hey, when my money comes in and down the line, this is, this is also down the line when I'd leveraged myself into a higher income position, I was really able to put my money more to work. I could still have done the same things earlier though. Even on my lowest salary, I could have understood percentages and made myself live with and do less. You know, less less to spend on frivolous purchases, less to do this with, more to give me freedom down the line to do stuff like we're doing now. Like to have uh, an extra five figures in the bank account number that I had already put away from my early days. Like that would be a game changer right Huge. now and it would help with so many people in the pandemic. So kind of the habit that I really think, really, really, really think that we're glossing over because we do it reflexively now is asking questions. You need to stop what you're doing and ask questions, important questions. Like, am I satisfied with my life? Big, ugly questions that are going to make you want to not answer them. And the more you can actually do that, it is a detachment principle Jocko talks about as well. Like it, a question will detach you from what you're doing like in the moment and you reframe your thinking and it's so powerful. Justin and I have been going back and forth with all these different questions 
he's asking self-reflexive questions to himself, like, should I do this? How many times do people avoid even asking, should I do this? And they're just like, ah, the should is like about to come out of their mouth and they're about to purchase something. They don't even should it. They're just like, I did it. You know, impulse click or whatever. So for any chef or culinarian, the biggest, lowest hanging fruit habits, I'd say, are, are some of the ones that are simple but not easy. So it's simple in theory to be like, oh, I need to pause and ask myself questions. What that actually might look like and to condition a habit might be physically writing out the question on an index card that you pull out three times a day when your phone reminder goes off or having a phone reminder that goes off. But if you already ignore notifications, that's not going to work. So a lot of people talk about these tech like, oh, just put an alarm and stuff. It's like, well, if you're like me at certain points, I've had so many notifications that I'm like, this is garbage. Just any notification is garbage. Like, I don't even care, you know. And so if that's where you're at with oversaturation and notifications, don't use tech. Use something lower tech. Use an index card. Write down, hey, these are the questions I'm trying to ask today. And it's you may feel like, hey, I don't have enough time to do that. Ask yourself, why don't you have enough time to do that? That's the question to start with. If you feel like I don't have enough time to journal, answer the question, why do I feel like I don't have enough time to journal? Because it's really a feeling. It's really not the truth. If totally. you wanted to do it, you could do it. So I think that's some of the big stuff that I see you do. And I now talking to you think that I've taken for granted is that I've programmed myself to ask questions of myself frequently and even at, at certain intervals of the year or at certain times when I'm like, like, how about this for an in instance, instead of losing your job and being like, I got to get a job. Like, uh, where should I go? I need a job right now. Ask yourself, where do you want a job? Where would you like to go? And focus on that as a, as a way of having authorship of your life, as opposed to being like, well, I guess I better just go to fast food now or fast casual. And then that's it for my dreams. You know, you may even have to take that step just for a little bit, just to kind of get what you need to do stable. But that's not the end of the story unless you make it that way. And if you stay there for too long, you never ask the question, what do I want next? There's a funny thing that gets tossed around in these kind of like habit building routine, morning routine, evening routine, journaling, bullet journaling kind of circles mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I think that could be a really valuable takeaway for, for people. And when I, when I first started investing my money, mm -hmm. it was actually like an embarrassing amount. <laughs> yeah. like it was literally like $25 a month I'm pretty sure is where I started yeah. mm -hmm. and for uh, for for certain people that might be 5% of my paycheck 2% mm -hmm. of my paycheck mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but what it does and and you know even to your point of like these big ugly questions like of course you want to get there but the question of like what's the smallest step I can take yeah like 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 why why do I have why do I have coffee for as my first beverage in the morning you know, like, oh, yeah, why, yeah. why is this my bedtime? You know, like, why yes, is, yes. or like, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of actually physically too, when you work out like a proper warm up, right? Totally, totally. Before, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of people, if you're not that type of person that actually will be like, you know what, it's just time. I'm going to draw a line in the sand. I'm going to face this ugly question. Most people aren't like that. So if you're not, then exactly what he's saying is totally, I am vibing a hundred percent. You need to be able to take away the barriers and the resistance so that you can feel Hey, that wasn't so bad, right? That well, because you so train bad. yourself oh. to say, I'm the type of person that blank, ask dot, questions, dot, dot. Oh, ask questions yes. invest my yes. money, you know, because then mm -hmm. increasing the amount is just increasing the amount or like the complexity of the question might change, 
you know, but and, yeah. and here's the thing, that's a script that's running in everybody's head whether they know it or not. At all times. At all times. And it's mm-hmm. on multiple levels. Like I'm the type of person who you may think oh, I'm the type of person who always is late or whatever it, whatever it could be. It it's like getting getting that label, that self-labeling. And here's one thing that Justin and I agree strongly on, and you can see us doing this live on the internet, uh, much more so with him. I've been a little stagnant for some time, but we're creating our identity. We're not just being like, hey, this is who I am, and that's all I ever am. We're like, okay, I'm going to ask more questions until I find out more of who I want to be. And I'm going to allow myself to go in those directions, regardless of how conventional that is, or regardless of how even profitable that may seem at the time, you know, it's, it's these type of big reframes that can start with little small steps of just getting comfortable with pen and paper again, getting, you know, taking, it's, it's tough because you do want to break the elephant down and incrementally work on that, right? You, you break your cuts down into your primal cuts and then you go lower and you get down into your, your portions for service, right? In the butchery game. And it's a, natural process right and and to link it with back with consulting i think this is a unique perspective that chefs have that they take for granted is you know when i work with other people they're amazed at how i can just break something down into like the component parts like i'm like that's what we do with recipes you know it's like <laughs> that's, that's what we do and and, and it's yep. a huge advantage that a lot of people can't do because they've never physically had to do it they've never been like okay yeah i want to make a uh the beef carpaccio dish that i had at that restaurant i want to make it okay uh, am I going to do that by looking up a recipe and then watching their breakdown potentially? Or if I'm at a level of knowledge and mastery, I can do that myself just in my own head or with paper, you know? So I think that's a big, big, big thing that it it's not, it's not possible to build a media empire and just transition out of culinary alley-oop, boom, slam dunk. Like, you, you know, you're doing it now. You're building your, you're building your empire. You're building, you're making your mark. And things have a way of taking longer while they're happening, but shorter in retrospect, that also compounds over time. It's like, man, it feels like no time ago I was a sous chef. And I'm totally. telling you, it's been it's been like <laughs> since I've been a real, real, real sous chef, it's been like nine years. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but it, it's still so fresh. Totally. The war the war stories are still right there. You know, yep. you don't yep. Yep. you don't lose it. And and I think Ray was kind of talking about this too, like getting permission from yourself to go in your direction whether that's deeper into culinary or whether that's into a consumer packaged goods for your own personal brand savory nori or whatever you know it's like it 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 can be anything our question that we try to get to is can it be everything can it be everything that i want it to be that i that i really want to and we get into either spreading ourselves too thin potentially or that sweet spot where yeah you 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 spend enough time still at the cutting board with your knives that you're not losing your edge literally you're not losing your edge and you're you know creating your content you're pumping it out you're doing your incremental things and for people that are wanting to get on a journey like this when it comes to routines i thought that i wasn't a routine person but that's just an excuse that's just a totally bullshit lie that i told myself because i was uncomfortable with the routines that other people would have for me or that i was like my youth routines that weren't designed by me or whatever. One of the most liberating things you can do as an adult is to design your own schedule that works to the long-term benefit of you and your family and everybody around you. Like that's the, that's the goal, right? Is to, I mean, when you realize it, that, 
hey man, tomorrow's not guaranteed. None of this is guaranteed. Memento Mori, right? We're, we're man, this just this conversation is a miracle, right? I watched I watched Greenland that you know. <laughs> totally. Who knows, who knows what's coming, right? Yeah, so yeah. We, we we have a short time to make our mark and to make our art. So when you realize that, I think it's a beautiful way to decide that hey, I want to make a routine that I like. You know, I love that abomination that I don't even know who says it. It's like a meme basically of like build a life you don't need a vacation from. Could even be like a Tim quote that's been like so tossed around. I don't even know that it's Tim quote. For our work week something. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that type of like set it up. And I think that lifestyle design can be done in small stages from even the most grinding schedule, even the most difficult position. Last thing for a routine that I think is the most underrated game changer physically that is so slept on is foam rolling. Foam rolling. Get a foam roller and roll your back, roll your hips, roll your quads after every service. Like even if I would do yoga in the parking lot outside of one of my restaurants. Like, you know, it's Huge. like whatever it takes to to actually properly care for yourself and set that up as a system that's repeatable. No, all really, really, really good takeaways. And I hope to, whatever kind of like um, bucket that you see that you're, is, is a little bit empty in your life, whether that's the financial one or the mindset one or the physical one, you can kind mm -hmm. of like take away. And even again, I include it as part of my newsletter every week of like current experiment I'm running. That's a great one. I love that, man. Because it's like, I want, I, I want to be the type of person that experiments, you know? So yeah. I hold myself accountable to literally writing about it every single week to the, you know, thousands of people that subscribe to the newsletter. So I have to show up and I have to be the, like, what am I going to do next week? You know? So it's just yeah, constantly yeah, yeah. kind of like top of mind. Are you that's okay a, if we... That's, that's a huge, yeah, we can yeah. totally start to wrap up. Absolutely, man. It's yeah, been yeah, yeah. fucking um, awesome. Uh, but no, no, what you were saying though... You, you mentioned it in an offhand way, but I think that's a huge thing is that audience accountability, personal accountability. It's, it's, I mean, only a certain few people that I've met, and I'm not all the times this guy, but I kind of have it in me to hold myself to a standard. Sometimes it's not easy to develop that. I don't know if it was a genetic. I don't know where it really came from, but I feel like I implanted that in myself or was implanted in me at some early age. And I can kind of get myself to like, no, I need to hold the line here, like on this. Sometimes I don't on certain things, but being accountable to yourself is where it starts. But I need other people to be accountable too. Like, I don't want to disappoint you. That's why I was like, I, I want to get on this podcast Friday. Like, even the little bit of accountability that I had coming to do this today made me level up. Like, I told Justin, like, I, I wanted to level up my production game on like getting into this and stuff. I. I wanted to deliver as much value as I possibly could, and that's a conscious choice that I think everybody can add to their day. You know, it's like even if you're wherever you are in your career right now, if you start focusing on adding so much value and just being like, "And I got, I can do it." You know what? Even if even if I'm in a growth curve, like let me be real about you where I'm growing right now. This is what I know I can do, and this is what I know I can't do. But yeah, man, it's been a pleasure to be on here, and, and I, I totally, totally admire and respect the way that you're actually going about manifesting a lot of stuff that I also want to manifest, and you're showing that it's possible, and I love it, man. Dude, always always a pleasure to talk to you. Like, even the little, like, quips we've had on Twitter back and forth, this is just, like, yeah. so, I'm so energized, like, with this conversation. Yeah, the, it sounds like I'm being so tangential right now, but you brought up something that, like, ties back to a point we made super early on in the conversation and I want to make it because Ooh. I think it's going to help people is when we were talking about 
the first time, and it was to your point of being accountable to someone or having people in your family, your network of friends, your coworkers, however you define that, to be the sounding board for your goals and your ideas. And the very practical example that I'm going to give, and then we can jump into rapid fire questions, is cool. in relation to the interview you're going to have after the stage. Mm-hmm. If you think that all the chef is going to ask you for is to, you know, read off your resume uh, bullet points, mm-hmm. <laughs> can you role play that with your roommate and say, hey, like, here's the five questions I wrote down, shuffle them up in note cards, slide them across oh, the table man. to that person Huge. and say, Huge. ask Huge. me these questions. And then you Huge. get and, used and? to answering those. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. And and it's like, it's it's a form of training. It's also, you can do that, that Jocko talks about that all the time, scenario-based training. So like, let's say, yeah, that's an interview scenario where, yeah, you need to prep for an interview. Let's say that's just sitting down with one of your cooks and being like, can you verbally tell me, how, let's role play right now. I got order fire, duck spring rolls, beef carpaccio, and french fries. What do you do first? Let's role play that, like as a chef with my guy, you know? I think that that's huge room. And, and like you said, having those people around you that you can do that with and you can trust that aren't just going to be yes men either, right? They're like, hey, is this seasoned well? They're like, yes, chef. And they, they don't really tell you the truth. They're like, right, there's no right. acid in that. Right, right, right. right. You know? Totally true. Yeah. All right, rapid fire style. The yeah. I had an audience question from Liam. How has yeah. moving from so far up north in Canada to a southern state in Texas impacted your culinary growth, if at all? Totally has. Um I'd say it's a lot harder to pin down what Canadian cuisine is because people asked me that when I came down here. Like, what is Canadian cuisine? I was like, well, Quebec has a very strong cuisine, a very strong identity as a food-producing francophone part of Canada. The rest of us, I mean, I'd say really, really, really good salmon. Maple syrup is much of a cliche as it is. I mean, that's a great ingredient that we can have access to. Um, and honestly, Alberta beef. I mean, like, it's it's kind of like nothing that really stands out other than some cliche dishes like poutine right you know like that's a that's a canadian known dish but like really it's kind of we take influences like our culture from europe from france from uh we're a multicultural country so we do a lot of you know asian and and other ethnicities very well done by those people of those ethnicities but yeah coming down to texas there's definitely a stamped hey when you think texas you think smoke you think brisket you think tex-mex you think you know, a little bit of the Southwest with that own independent flair. So, uh, yeah, in, in in having that in a repertoire of stuff, I wanted that. I wanted that big, smoky, bold flavor, that steak, like 64-ounce tomahawk ribeye. Like, I can grill that garlic, you know, like everything. Totally. I wanted that kind of big Texas flavor, I think, goes a long way. So that was a big thing coming down here. And it's it's actually a very diverse place, too. I mean, you look at what's going on in Austin at any time. It's one Huge. of the trendsetters, you know. So. Yep. I think moving to Texas was the opportunity to scale up my opportunities. I'm going to ask you to crystal ball this question because it's a very February 2021. And I don't know, actually, like, it's a very February 2021 question. And I don't know if you're familiar with this space at all, but I'd be curious because I think you might have dabbled in this. But what is what's going to be the first culinary related NFT that makes waves? See, I think there's huge, huge opportunities there. I mean, anybody who does some Bourdain fan art NFT, that's going to be huge. That's going to be massive. 
limited edition Bourdain fan art, I'll call it. That's going to be a huge one. I'd say, honestly, NFT recipes, like one off. This is my this is my signature recipe that I'm only releasing like four of them. You know, this is how I do it. And this is the one thing I've never shown any recipe or never put in any book, like limited knowledge pieces. Also, like who's to say that you couldn't build a like a technique trading card system? Like this is the technique video of Jacques Pepin doing this or, or me or you or whoever doing a technique that's like, hey, that was the one time that that he did that with that knife. Like watch him use that $5,000 knife to cut X or something like that. So I think unique moments, I think icons characterized in art. And I also do definitely think about, um, you know, the actual information itself being proprietary. Sure. You know? And, and wait, let's give a little clarity for those people who don't know what we're talking about. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. So the blockchain, it permanizes information and distributes it across multiple sources, removing the need for a central authority. Theoretically, you look at some of these projects, they're still pretty centralized. So again, uh, not, not NFTs in particular, just blockchain projects. But with NFTs, they're going to be huge. You're going to be hearing that three-letter word come up. So at least you heard it here first. Totally. Just probably maybe no, and, and i don't know a, I, yeah. lo I love i love him because he's always trying to be like just on the cusp of what's going to be impacting the industry or it's so tangential that it may not even on the surface look like it may only until you ask the question how is this going to impact the industry uh, my an interesting thing that i'm interested to see play out is if people are going to have digital living rooms where they're going to display their art why can't they have a digital kitchen you know like, yeah, what's that yeah. going to look like uh, which I'm very, very fascinated to see where that goes. You, you, here's, you might. Here's, here's a here's yeah. Nostradamus thing. Here's a Nostradamus. Nah, yep. Not really Nostradamus. I want the prediction. I want the prediction. VR culinary school. Thousand percent. Thousand yeah. percent. You Some can, version of it. Some well, you could have a hologram of a carrot or a potato on your cutting board, and it's like match the physical potato with the hologram and use your knife to Sensor cut along the these lines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, dude. Thousand percent. Um. Also, might... also, just those those like VR ability to place a camera somewhere, like placing they're doing that with sports. So placing a camera at the pass of like Alenia, I mean, like, hey, you can pay like seventy five bucks a month to like subscribe to like Alenia's five, you know, things they're doing this month and, and watch it in your Oculus. Totally, I would sign up to that. Which we which, did that. I, I would too. And which is weird because you don't get to taste the stuff. Well, <laughs> like... yeah, I, I I think that there has to be another element of like it feels experiential or there's a voiceover. Or you can, yeah. like, something else, because we did that at Grace. Like, we would put a phone on the pass or a GoPro, and we would just mm. film service and live stream it for, like, an hour. I think there's a buddy of mine who owns a restaurant in New York called Olmstead that did something very similar. It was a top-down camera of the pass, dishes coming cool. in and out, tickets, whatever. And it was just, like, you'd watch it for 10 minutes, and you'd just be like, okay, I've either seen the same dishes come by over and over and over again. There's yeah, no yeah, value yeah, yeah. being, like, uh -huh, I, I can uh -huh. see the pay, like, what is the extractable information from that? I think for if sure. you can figure out where the value add is for some, a VR play, then you can totally have something like that. Um, and it yeah. might be a well, little bit. This is something that you mentioned and, and I want to touch on too is like, and, and I heard you mention on your other podcast, like when to start documenting like your journey. And, and if I could have started earlier, if I, here's my deal. Like when I worked for Trey at Marquis, I didn't even bring my phone on the line. I put that in my knife bag away. I Same. never, ever even took a photograph of anything I did because I was that weeded trying to get my way out. You know, yep, uh, but, yep. but if I could pay for a time machine to go back and put a GoPro on myself or on and have any of that as legacy footage 
with my chef's permission, of course. Um, if I could do that, I would, because that just adds to what we'd, we could even cut to B-roll of this on YouTube. Like, you know, it's like, here it was, you know, or like whatever, yeah. like getting that raw stuff that you're almost embarrassed of how raw it is at the time becomes so valuable as time yep. goes on. Agreed. You might recognize this question from Tim Ferriss's mouth. Uh, what is one thing that you've changed your mind on in recent memory? Wow. That is a, that is a good one. And I can't take credit for that one. That's all, Tim. <laughs> Directly copied and pasted. Okay. I wanna... We can come back to it. Well, I, I want to give a real and genuine answer, and I think it's probably going to be pretty personal, but, like, I think I'm changing my mind on why I feel like I need to be right in an argument or prove my point. Um, it's not always practical. It's not always, like, worth going down that rabbit hole and arguing with somebody about something that is so trivial in the big picture. If I can just zoom out, I'll be like, Hey, why am I upset about this? Why is this frustrating me? Why is this? So I'm trying to change my mind consciously about, so it's less like one thing, but I'm trying to be aware of a character trait that I exhibit where I infallibly think I'm right. Even if I am correct on some level about it, I'll argue to the death about it, even if it's not worth arguing to the death about. So it's a personal character trait I'm trying to work on and trying to change that consciously and try to do any of that stuff is, is tough because character, literally the etymology of it is like from a stamp, you know, it's stamped into right. you. And so it's That's tough. Interesting. It's tough. And a yeah. side note on character for, you know, a little Easter egg in the show notes, um, Robert Greene's laws of human nature, that book is boom, boom, boom. Like, Oh man, I'm going through that right now. And talk about, what is one thing I'm changing my mind on? Try not to have a bunch of biases. Try not to let my biases control my thinking. Superiority bias, I think we all can take a little bit down a notch, you know? It's like I, I had this – and I could watch myself doing it at the time, but it was so painful. Like going to family meals when I was peak culinary like obsession and just being like this isn't right. This In my head, being like this is not seasoned right. And like, and kind of like not being able to turn off that like perfectionistic it, – but it's like it's – it's grandma's this or it's mom's that or like it's it still has the love in it. It still has all this stuff in it. But I was like, I know this could be better and elevated, you know, but it was like, bro, like this is your family, <laughs> totally, you know, like totally. So that's the thing I'm trying to change my mind on, especially the superiority bias, because yeah, because of the work I've tried to put in it, it, it sometimes comes across as like I'm arrogant and like and sure. I don't want that, you know, and I don't want to be like I don't want to actually be arrogant. Definitely. I don't want it to come across that way. So that's something I'm working on changing my mind on. No, no, that's great. And it, it, it's not going to happen in a day, right? Like it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's an identity change. I like that uh, character analogy. How, how do you make your eggs in the morning? Man. It's your day off. Maybe. Sunday I love morning. it. Okay. Um, I have a copper pan and I really, really like the way that it just finishes the eggs off the heat. So yeah. I like to do a soft scramble. Um, it's one of my definite favorites. Tight. If I want to ball out, though, I, I, I love, love, love a properly poached egg too. So, I mean, but that's like, I got to really set it up and, yep. you know, it, it, I'm not going to poach anything if I'm not going to make a Bernays or Hollandaise. So then right. that's a whole thing, right? Got so it, got like it. if I'm going all out and it's one of those weekends, I'm gonna pop a bottle. I'm gonna do that little salmon Benedict. But, uh, if it's just for Sebastian and Marissa and myself, um, a lot of times it's a nice soft scramble, a little bit of parm. Yep. That's tight. The... Nice. Last question, and then I'm gonna, you know, leave the floor to you to kind of share any last thoughts. But cool. the the 
fan favorite question is that you somehow get a call after this interview that you've just won an all-expenses-paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And then when you get there, there's someone who you've always wanted to talk to waiting to have dinner with you. What restaurant is it? And who is that dinner guest? Man. Uh, okay. The restaurant is Kikunoi in Kyoto, Japan. Um, and honestly, I'd love to sit down with Jocko Willink or Tim Ferriss. So it's kind of a it's, it's a tie. Tim, Tim was earlier to the game and changing my life. But Jocko has not taken the torch completely away from Tim by any means. I still listen to a ton of Tim's stuff. He produces so much, though, that it's like, I got to pick your battles, right? So mm-hmm. I, I, I listen to almost every Jocko podcast that comes out. Tight. And so sitting down with him would be just a, 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 you know, an amazing experience. So I would, I would choose him at Kikunoi, although that wouldn't be the food that he would be so... I was going to ask how, how Jocko would respond to a meal like that. It's so funny to like see him in that environment. I know it would be totally sad to see him presented with that really refined multi-course Japanese tasting, and yeah. then him just be like, "I'm still hungry. Let's go get a ribeye." That's basically what he would probably say. Like, facts. Where do they have steak? Yeah, Let's go yeah, get yeah. one. And and granted, of course, you know, I I, I love my steak too. <laughs> cool. I mean, dude, listen this this has been not just overdue, but this is like completely exceeded my expectations like tons well, of value for people and like it's it's that's, been a real that's what i wanted yeah and here's here's where i'll leave it man and this is something that i do for anybody who reaches out to me at, at i don't know at a certain scale this may not be practical but if you want to reach out to me and go over something you're going through in your career i can i can spend some time with you guys via email or something like that um i really want to put something together um before this goes live and give a little overview on some physical checklist stuff that I've been working on over the years that's really, really, really helped me and uh, helps me operate on multiple levels. So before we sat down today, uh, talking about being intentional, um, this was learned from Tim Ferriss' podcast with David Allen. So David Allen, the getting things done guy, um, he has this thing that he talks about called the natural planning method, which is actually very counterintuitive to how people tend to plan. They tend to brainstorm They tend to try to organize everything, brainstorm, and then they're like, at the end of it, they're like, wait, why are we doing this? So the natural planning method starts with the purpose, and then it goes through the principles, which I also equate to non-negotiables or musts, and then you talk about your vision and outcomes. So you're starting from a place of, why am I doing this? You're looking at, hey, what are the non-negotiables that I do in order for this to happen? And then what is the outcome that I want? So I did one of those, and I do this all the time, even within projects. I'll do one for a project entirely. And if I'm at a point in a project where I'm like, okay, this little component here, don't have a ton of clarity on it, like I need to do something. So this is my little method. And it's like one index card I've, I've planned. Oh, wait, where am I? I'm up here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've planned major initiatives on these or minor components. It doesn't matter. If you can't really get an outlined plan on a single index card, your idea is probably multiple ideas. That's my determination after all, a lot of this. Yep. So I did this and I'll kind of share this with you guys to wrap up. Because that's what I wanted to do, and I'm glad that that happened because that was my purpose, to bring value to each other and the larger world, to connect and share a fun, genuine, and beneficial conversation for the world, and to build an increase of good for the culinary world. Those were the purposes of what I set out to do by being here. And the principles, I said, we must be empathetic to the industry itself and really not get on some high level where we're not even connecting things to how we got here. Uh, We must deliver key takeaways and excellence. It must be professional and composed, and it must be fun and dig deep. And I think we covered those musts. So for the vision and outcome, I said we really connected and bonded. Uh, this became a top hit, which we'll see. I mean, I hope you guys like this. I hope you guys want to reach out and find out more, and this provided some value to you guys and opened some doors perhaps. 
because um, we talked a lot about how to open doors. Um, and then this podcast brought us momentum that brought greater success. So it's another all in the effect of the snowball that's rolling to the destination we're trying to get to. So those are some of the visions and the outcomes. Then I had my brainstorming of like, so you go through the vision and the outcome, then you brainstorm and then you organize it. And so I'll explain all this stuff and I'll, I'll take everybody through that as a value add. I'll make a URL and Justin will throw it below. Yep. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, it's, it's been overdue and I'm so glad it, it exceeded my expectations too. You're, you're, once I actually listened to you interview, I was like, okay, so he doesn't just listen to podcasts. He's also doing this in a way that's a, at a professional level, which again, here we notice the carryover notice that Justin's professional background helped him execute this more professionally it doesn't, it doesn't start without one or the other. You need to like be around professionals. That's kind of where I'll leave it, I guess. Wherever you are in your career and make sure you're around the best professional caliber of people you possibly can at all times, whenever possible. And if you're looking for the, who the professional is in the room, then just be that person and lead. Let's do an episode two, like sooner than later. Because that's like, cool, man. I'd love to. <laughs> what an awesome way to end. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Oh man, thank you, man. What's up? Justin here again. Because, I mean, if you're still listening, you didn't not like this episode, right? And if that's the case, I'd like to think that you'd get value from the other work that I share here online. It's all focused on helping chefs and hospitality professionals perform better. If you don't have a lot of time, the best place to start is with the email newsletter that I write every single week called the 80-20 Edge. That's where I share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. And I say it saves time because I include all of the content that I publish that week all in one place as kind of a weekly digest of sorts. Next up, you should check out my YouTube channel for gear reviews, clips from podcasts just like this one, and documented experiences from some of the best restaurants in the world. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about my intense cohort-based professional development focused course, get coaching from me to help you make your next move, or just support the show, you can check out justinconnor.com support. And if you do support this show already, that's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Finally, it really does help to share a review of this show on Apple Podcasts to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. And until the next episode, my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.